Welcome back to another episode of Real Relatable. I am your host, Donna Green, here for part three of the Each Generation series about being Black in America and how the racism we experience can and does continue to transcend generations. We spent the first two segments on our baby booner generation of Black parents. Our next guest, man, y'all are in for a treat. Uh, This individual has been incredibly involved with boots on the ground and a lifetime of work for the fight for social justice and human rights. He has walked the walk with some of the most renowned figures in the human rights movement from the late John Lewis to Reverend Al Sharpton to Reverend Jesse Jackson to um, to Martin Luther King III, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, and that is just the tip of the iceberg. The host of Make It Plain podcast, please welcome Reverend Mark Thompson. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Donna, and um, what you failed to mention my most important title, and that is being your cousin. This is true. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to. That's talent. Yes, you're absolutely right. I almost feel a little unworthy of kind of like diving into an interview, an interview with you on these topics, but here I am. I mean, you've emceed some of the most well-known events in history, such as the Million Man March in 1995 and the anniversaries of the March on Washington, um, with this year celebrating the 57th anniversary from the original March in 1963 that historically outlawed segregation the following year. Tell me how that felt in 2020, considering the current climate and what was that energy like? Well, um, again, thank you for having me and thank you for having this conversation. I'm, I'm very proud of you. Thank you. What you're doing. Um, this year um, was a little more different than every year before. And each, each time we've done an anniversary march on the mall or any march on the mall, uh, each has its own unique and extraordinary background story, backstory inside baseball, so to speak. Uh, Of course, this one was about COVID. (laughs) Uh, And one day, whenever I'm able uh, to get some time to write my own book, I'll I'll tell some of those stories. But there was a lot of debate at this march or leading up to this march, but whether or not we should even have it, um, whether or not it should just be virtual, uh, were we taking risks in terms of this moment of COVID? Um, but it's interesting, just in the days leading up to the demonstration, we were expecting a smaller crowd because we had scaled back on the number of buses that had been organized from out of state. The mayor of Washington, D.C. had um, mandated that visitors from at least, I think, 19 states would have to quarantine for 14 days upon entering Washington, D.C. So all the buses that had been organized from those states were canceled uh, in deference to the mayor's order. Um, The mayor was very concerned about an event that could um, uh, affect COVID or even spread COVID. The National Park Service, on whose land we demonstrated, was very concerned about it. As a matter of fact, just, just a little bit of trivia, if Donald Trump had not kneecapped the National Park Service by forcing them to uh, hold or, or allow his 4th of July event mm. over their COVID regulations, the National Park Service would have maintained the authority to cancel Donald Trump's event 
and to cancel ours, the March on Washington. Hmm. They would not have granted us that permit. That I know that for a fact. So we had to kind of navigate through all that. And then in the days leading up, um, the killing of Jacob Blake mm-hmm. pretty much changed everything. And just like right when George Floyd happened, people forgot about the pandemic. Right. The police-demic made people forget about the pandemic. And that was once again the case on August 28, 2020. And I think that's big, too, because it's the movement and the importance of what we're fighting for. Um, obviously people are willing to risk their lives for it. Cause you know, for us in the black community, it could be our life, our life either way. Right. Um, so it's, you know, weighing what's most important, but I think that says a lot about the movement too, is that, you know, you're willing to risk your life for it to be out there and um, amidst a pandemic. And unlike Donald Trump, at his rallies, mm-hmm. we mandated masks down. Mm-hmm. Look at the March on Washington. Everybody was wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. And we were social distancing up until the point we reached about a quarter of a million people. It was just too many people out mm-hmm. there effectively social distance, but we did the best we could. Right, absolutely. You know, it's interesting because there's some things that are like hobbies that people might dabble into um, that they like to do, but like a calling is something that you like to do as well. But the differentiation is how you push through even when you're tired, right? And I know you're spread super thin and exhausted from everything that's going on now. And so I do, you know, again, appreciate you coming onto the podcast. Um, So tell me about like what area and where you grew up? So, um, even though most people mistake me for Gen Z, uh, I was <laughs> I was actually born uh, in 1966. Um, my mother was a senior at Howard University, and then in 1967, she um, began to raise me. She went back home and grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. Um, so I, I guess that um, it makes me a, a Gen Xer. I think that's what I am. Yeah. So it's just after the boomers. Yeah. Um, and so while I was not old enough to be involved in some of the major uh, activity of the late 60s and the civil rights era, mm-hmm. I feel close enough to it to almost have been there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, and I, it's it kind of it's kind of interesting at times. I'm thinking, I said, like, "Wow, it's almost like I was there." And then for the people who were there, there was so little difference in age. You know, we think about our struggle down in the civil rights movement. Um, it really wasn't that long ago. No, not at and all. We talk about half a century. So, um, my children, and you know, my son who just turned eighteen has been able to meet most of the icons during the civil rights area. So not just me, but for my children, mm-hmm. you have met all the people you just named, yeah. John Lewis and Jesse Jackson and Martin Luther King III and Mrs. King even before she passed mm-hmm. away, the children of Malcolm X. It, it says, I, he and I were talking about them when they said, remember, I know you've met all these people, which means that that really wasn't, in as far as the distant past as we think it might be. 
or as people want it to be so that we can stop talking about it. <laughs> right. Right. And so what were like some of the big things in pop culture when you were growing up? Oh, goodness. Ooh, Afros. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So when I was coming along, you had a choice in terms of size of the Afro. You could have a Jackson 5 Afro or you could have a Silvers Afro. Now, you may not have heard of the Silvers. Uh-uh. That was another group. Um, they had, their big hit was Hotline. And they were like an alternative group to the Jackson 5. They were uh, a family group, um, a family singing group, the Silvers with a Y. Um, and they, had Af- they actually had Afros bigger than Jackson's. Oh, wow. I, yeah, I had a Silvers Afro. Um, Huge. Yeah, it was it was pretty big. I mean, it was really big. I had a serious bush. Was very proud of it. That's what you did. Uh, I remember the seventies and dress and 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 bell bottoms and the colorful shirts. <laughs> yeah. I remember. I was watching a movie the other day, uh, and someone uh, didn't have. They didn't have a door to the office. They had beads. I remember when you didn't have doors in your mm-hmm. house. You had beads. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember Crush Velvet Furniture, Ooh. Lava Lamps, uh, Disco Balls. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> I remember I remember all the stacks, the shoes we used to wear. Oh, those remember, big old shoes. <laughs> yeah. And I remember I had a bad pair of stacks. It was the pair I wore to church on Sunday. I had some Sunday go-to-church stacks. That's what I wore. With the bell-bottoms uh, or a suit? Yeah, bell-bottoms. Okay. Well, yeah, <laughs> but all the pants were wide at the leg at mm. back then and all that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, some were more belled than others. But that was a style, um, open shirt with a suit and no necktie, mm-hmm. just, you know, and but your chest showing. I'm like picturing I'm, all of this as you're <laughs> describing it. We even, we even did that as kids. Yeah. That was smooth. We were sharp. Yeah. <laughs> and what was the culture uh, like around where you grew up in terms of um, whether it's like, you know, the racial divides or anything like that? Well, growing up in Nashville, I grew up on the campus of Fisk University, literally, because my mother was an employee there. We live in Fisk faculty housing. Um, We, so if you walked out my mother's, the front of my mother's house directly in front was Fisk. Um, 90 degrees to the left was Meharry. And a couple of blocks behind that was Tennessee State University. I grew up in a black college environment exclusively. Mm-hmm. I was raised simultaneously in HBCU town on all three of those HBCUs. Mm-hmm. I was surrounded by culture. And whenever anybody famous in the culture would visit one of those institutions, I was there, even as a little boy, uh, to watch and learn and just kind of breathe it all in yeah and then when i played sports um you know we played at school every day we played football and baseball uh, on the yard adjacent to wb du bois hall at, at mm-hmm. fisk university so i grew up seeing that name yeah hey wb du bois wb du bois and i saw all these other great names of great black people and there's no way to be exposed to that and not be curious about well, who are these people right and, and really all about and what contribution uh, have they made. My mother's father 
was a renowned educator in Nashville um, who was involved in the movement himself somewhat. Um, he founded the first black teachers union in the South, Middle Tennessee Color Teachers Association. Oh, wow. He was director of admissions at Fisk. Um, my mother went to Pearl High. Now, the students who would leave Fisk when John Lewis was there, was there to go march in Nashville for the sit-ins, mm -hmm. the high school students that would join them came out of Pearl. Mm. And so my mother um, was involved up to a point. Kids would leave Pearl High School to go downtown to Woolworths to sit in with John Lewis and Diane Nash and the other students from Fisk University. But because my grandfather had been a principal in the school system, her father, um, and was still very active, um, they were afraid of my mother getting hurt. Mm. And badly beaten. Mm -hmm. So the teachers at Pearl uh, would organize every day to block the school exits to keep my mother from sneaking out, oh, going wow. down to Woolworths to demonstrate. And it was something that she she always regretted. People, you know, later years would laugh about it. Mm -hmm. But um, they just didn't want to see my mother get beat up. And I think part of it had to do with the fact my mother was a was very young and she was very fair skinned mm. um, and people just couldn't imagine that. So they're like, no, 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 Janet, you can't go. But she saw telling me those stories about how much she wanted to be there, Yeah. Uh, but they would block it. They, yeah. My grandfather's peers, the older people in school, no, no, Janet, you can't go. And they would stay. So they would, she was always trying to figure out a, a, a way every day to sneak out of the school <laughs> to go downtown to Nashville and sit in. Yeah. And probably more successful than she's maybe wants to admit at some points. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, in chatting with the baby boomer generation, um, with our first two guests on the Each Generation series, it was interesting to learn about the role race played in my dad and my aunt's upbringings. And while they were um, both born in the era of segregation and witnessed it coming to an end, they had different takes on the effects. And so my dad, you know, he was uh, raised in Nashville, well, born in Nashville too. Um, but he mentioned how before the end of segregation, um, there were an incredible number of black businesses and services, et cetera, in like the black neighborhoods. But at the end of segregation, a lot of those businesses were sold to immigrants, um, which then dispersed like the availability of black owned um, businesses and things like that, like inside of those communities. Um, and he also mentioned kind of the, the difference of living in the South being, you know, people being maybe more outwardly racist um, and letting you know that they don't like you versus when he moved to Cleveland and kind of like knife in the back. You didn't know at first and you turn around and, you know, then kind of get you. Um, and then in my aunt's perspective, she was like, nope, no matter where you know, where you went, um, there were people that didn't like black people and they made sure it was known similar to the Southern experience of my dad. How did you uh, maybe experience any um, racial tension, especially, you know, I guess the area that you're in is more black centric anyway, but maybe outside of those areas? Well, a, a lot of what I learned about racism, I read about in the news. Mm. Um, and also, I, I guess my first real understanding of it um, was because of sports. Um, I was, what, uh, seven, seven years old 
when Hank Aaron was pursuing Babe Ruth's record. And the and I loved baseball and I loved Hank Aaron. And and the racism that was exhibited against him. It's like, wait a minute, what's going on? And I really began to understand what it was. Um, here was a black man that was being shunned and attacked for grading for breaking one of the if not the most sacred record in sports and we had always been considered inferior mm -hmm. uh, in just about every sport and mind you muhammad ali was around doing his thing um but still people like to consider those of us as african-americans as inferior beings mm -hmm. and so now you had the biggest record in all of sports, the biggest physical manifestation of athletic and physical prowess about to be broken by a black man mm -hmm. and folk were tripping. And even at seven years old, I was like, whoa, this is heavy. And it, it made me appreciate more even more what Hank Aaron was was doing at the time. Uh, and then after that, the floodgates opened. I began to read and see how many other aspects and areas of life where we were being dis discriminated against, mm -hmm. the double standards. Mm -hmm. It wasn't long after that. Um, Coach John Thompson went to the Final Four. Um, I mean, all of these things were happening right around us. And we were seeing still some barriers coming down, but still the attacks that resulted from those bears. So, mm -hmm. you know, those milestones in my life were, were Hank Aaron and Coach Thompson, the Final Four, and then Jesse Jackson running for president mm -hmm. and the level of scrutiny and attack that he was un under, the double standards. Right. But yet, the pride from each of those experiences, all um, before I was 18 years old, there was a level of pride that came from those experiences that to me overrode and overshadowed the racism that came along with it. Cause you know, it was maybe greater than their ignorance. You know, there's something greater that needed to come from it. Well, not only that, it, it made us feel proud to be black and mm -hmm. made us feel as like we really could do some big things, bigger than we had ever done before. And Reverend Jackson always sold us anyway. I am somebody. We always used to say that. Some of us, Donna, were too ignorant to know that the world thought of us as nobodies. So when he said, I am somebody, we had to then go back and understand, well, he must be saying that for a reason. Some of us knew it better than others. I didn't know it as much because of the environment I was growing up in. I was growing up in... in in relative context, a black middle class environment surrounded by black academicians. Mm -hmm. So all I saw was black excellence all around me. Mm -hmm. So when someone started saying, I am somebody, and when they said, Hank Aaron can hit this home, I said, wait a minute, maybe what I'm living ain't, it is just in its own relative context, in its own cocoon. Right. You know, you know we're, you know, your dad will probably tell you too. So when, when we're celebrating the 100th year of the Negro Leagues this year, well, when the Negro Leagues were in place and before segregation, we had thriving 
black businesses mm -hmm. and, and a thriving black economy. The desegregation wiped out. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people were content, content to live in that environment because there was nothing but black excellence. We were comfortable in our own skin, in our own environment, just not outside of it. Mm -hmm. I kind of grew up in a, in a more modern day version of that after desegregation because my sphere pretty much centered around um, those three black colleges and a family um, that was prominent in Nashville, your dad's family. Um, and it wasn't until I began to understand the large world, I began to realize, one, how blessed I was to have been nurtured in that environment, Absolutely. but yet also how I needed to apply my experiences and my blessings to make the world a better place for everyone. Absolutely. And I have uh, talked about it so many times on the podcast before, but it's, you know, being a product of your environment and, you know, being able to see um, things that you can manifest from, you know, the energy that you put into it. And I mean, that that's huge. Um, what did your, maybe like your parents or grandparents talk to you about growing up surrounding race relations? It sounds like they were pretty involved as well, kind of, you know, similar to your life path. But what did they, you know, talk to you about um, growing up? They would talk about some of their experiences. But I'll say this, and I think that's where uh, our generation was a little bit different. My parents' generation and my grandparents' generation. Um, well, first of all, let me say this about my, my grandparents' uh, uh, generation. Um, they strived, I think, to, just like in the case of my mother, uh, to shield their children from the harshness of racism and segregation, mm -hmm. um, to make or have as much positivity and surround children with as much positivity as possible. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily to dwell right. um, so much on hardship. My parents' generation, for those of us who are Gen Xers, um, I think what the boomers did, especially those black boomers who may have been involved and may have witnessed some of the harshness, mm -hmm. I think they tried to do the same thing. I, I think that as parents, we always try to shield our children mm -hmm. and present a better life for them. Right. And I think that's one of the problems that we have uh, today. Because a lot of the things that my grandparents' generation did, my parents' generation did, the current generations, even my peers, and the millennials, and... Um, the Gen Zers, while there is plenty of anger and resentment, it has yet to translate into the real um, organization um, and tangible, scientifically measurable work mm -hmm. during the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, because our parents didn't necessarily raise us to join an organization or to join a movement and to be dedicated to that in a lifelong freedom struggle. Right. Uh, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think it's what parents do. Mm -hmm. We want our kids, you know, you, you want your son, I want my children to, to, to live and breathe uh, a better life. But I think that today, 
the way social media often touches our children more quickly than we do as parents, mm -hmm. they are seeing the, the ugliness of America. Right. And finally, it's forcing some parents and children to have conversations that they otherwise might not have had. Or maybe they weren't prepared to. Correct. Absolutely. So this whole thing about the talk, I mean, for real, um, I don't know if a lot of people even know what that is. Or a lot of people have really done it now. There's this myth that we have the talk. But it's not as common as people think it is because it takes, at what age do we sit down with our children and say to them that the police might kill you? That's never a comfortable conversation. It's not so automatic. It's, mm -hmm. it's more organic. It comes, you know, at times when you least expect it. Shoot, I mean, a lot of parents don't even plan conversations around the birds and the bees, let alone the talk about avoiding police killings. Cause, cause these are not easy conversations to have. Right. And I feel, and I think part of it is like finding a balance of preparing them for the possibility of something that's so horrible, but then also shielding them from the possibility of something that's so horrible and um, not to instill or incite fear from different interactions um you know you have bad people you have good people across the board so it's not to you know prejudge someone in that way but it's just to be a excuse me to be aware um of what could be i guess um but it's still like i mean gray's only three i have not gotten there yet no. <laughs> i'm still working on <laughs> right and you're not expected to and and again is human nature. We want our kids to be happy. Mm -hmm. You know, think about all the things that happen in, in parental relationships and, and marriages and finances. Most of us shield our kids from all that. We don't give them all the details about, mm -hmm. uh, you know, our kids don't know how close we came to not being able to pay that bill. Uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> we don't disclose that. So if we don't disclose that, it's, it's not so natural to disclose some of the other ugly things that go on. But at this point, I think we don't have much of a choice now. Right. You know, as mentioned, you have been incredibly involved in the civil rights movement um, for you know a very long time, I might venture just to say your whole lifetime. How did you get so involved? So I know you mentioned when you were seven, you know, that was the first time that you really recognized, like, wait a minute, something's different. Um, but was there maybe a particular experience that got you more like physically involved to maybe join the marches or do, you know, take action versus, you know, learning about it. So my first March on Washington was the 20th anniversary, uh, 1983. By that time I met my father. I didn't meet my father till I was 10. He was living in Washington, DC. Um, and I went to visit him and then went to the March on Washington on the National Mall, for the 1983, the 20th anniversary. Um, and it was an experience unlike any other I'd ever had. Everybody was there, all the civil rights icons. Um, Minister Farrakhan spoke there when he was still allowed to speak at those types of things. <laughs> uh, that was incredible. Wow, it was just, but then Stephen Wonder got up and sang Happy Birthday on the National Mall. Done. And it was, I think later that fall, we got the bill passed uh, for the Martin Luther King holiday. Oh, wow. And the bug had bit me at that point. Mm -hmm. um, 
after that, Jesse Jackson's run for the presidency, mm-hmm. which again was a moment of great pride and inspiration. And it wasn't even that we thought he could actually win. We had always, he used to say, we had we were winning our self-respect. Mm-hmm. That we could actually do something like that as black people in 1984 and hold our heads high and be proud of ourselves. That was an incredible experience. And I got involved in the campaign, 17, 18 years old. Um, and um, again, you know, we were chanting everywhere around the country, run, Jesse, run. And it wasn't just about him. It was about all of us being at the table, being mm-hmm. seen as qualified people to be, because we never, who we, we can't be president. What, nobody's going to let us be president. Mm-hmm. Are we qualified? Would we even be viewed in that, in that way? And while Shirley Chisholm's campaign was effective, it was Reverend Jackson's campaign that had a larger mass appeal and a larger mass media appeal. And then the perfect foil um, in no good Ronald Reagan um, to run against. And so um, that's, you know, between 83 and 84 is where I, I really got hooked um, and stayed in the struggle and never left it. Yeah, so what, you were like 17 roundabout then? Yeah. I didn't turn 18 until December of 84. So it was after the campaign. Wow. Um, So yeah, um, 1983 uh, was what, 16 at the March on Washington, Uh, 17 when the Jackson campaign got going. Yeah. So that was, um, that was pretty much my involvement. That's incredible. And you mentioned getting Martin Luther King day passed and, you know, getting that into, um, a celebrated holiday. Um, this past year, I reckon I was working that day. We didn't, you know, it wasn't a paid holiday for um, my company, but someone that I emailed with the state, their, uh, out of office response was, um, Oh my gosh, what was it? It was something that I hadn't even heard of. And I was like, it's MLK day. What do you mean? Idaho. Human rights day. So, I was like, what does this even mean? And it, it, it was after that, that, um, I mean, they basically all lives mattered. The, <laughs> the MLK day before all lives matter was a thing. Um, so I know who human rights day also known as Martin Luther King jr. Um, is, that a, out of you, did they just make that up or was that a real thing out of whole human rights day? It's a thing. It's a state holiday in Idaho. Um, on the third Monday of January, it focuses on human rights while embracing diversity. It also honors Martin Luther King Jr. as an American civil rights leader. And I was so taken aback by this because I'm like, why did this even happen? So they have been, no. I mean, this has been in place for um, Idaho Human's right, Human Rights Day was created on January 16th, 2006. Um and they hyphenated it. So it's Martin Luther King Jr. dash Idaho Human Rights Day. Uh, so instead of just celebrating Martin Luther King Jr., it had to be hyphenated. Um, yeah. Well, people people have always had to water down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's unfortunate. I mean, it's, 
is not as bad as other states like Virginia, who at one time had Martin King Day alongside some Confederate. So, Confederate. Mm-hmm. so I'd be, maybe it's not worth haggling over. I'd be curious to know exactly what is Idaho Human Rights Day about, but it seems to me a bit redundant. If you had Martin King Day, I don't know why you need to, but you know, people need to make themselves feel better. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's basically yeah. what happened here. But anyway. A thing I used to do with my friends who worked in places that they couldn't get the holiday MLK, I would threaten to stage protests at their jobs. And like, Mark, please don't do that. You're going to get me fired. But I would just mess with them. See, I'm coming down there. Shut your job. <laughs> Good job. I'll let y'all off. <laughs> right. <laughs> They'll thank you later. <laughs> right, right, right. But uh, um, no, it, it's a sacred holiday that 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 everyone should recognize without any uh, hyphenations hyphen- or yeah, nothing else. I know it's it was insane, and so I was. Um, that was when I was about to create a petition, um, to to do it, and I never. I never followed through on it because um, I didn't really know where to start or who I was going to get to support, you know. But, First of all, I figured out how, how it came about, what's, the, what's, what's really, yeah, the, how that evolved and what really are they trying to say? It, it, you know, is it something we don't know? I don't know, but. Yeah. Be like Before I fly off the handle. <laughs> Like, let me do my research. Yeah, I know. Just when I first saw that, I'll have to look back. I know I posted something on social media about it um, because I was like, then I was really doing the research. Now I'm like trying not to, you know, totally multitask, but I was like, what the heck? Like, what is that? It doesn't make any sense. But yeah, I'll look into it. Anyway, and, you know, with your kids too, with Menra and Ifton, they've been pretty involved, would you say, too? Like, maybe just... um, following your footsteps or um, were you like pushing them at all to, to do something? Well, Ifton from the time she was a baby used to go to all the movement meetings with me. She was a movement baby. And it was always known whenever I was going to a meeting and we were having a meeting on any particular event, Ifton was going to be there. Uh, people still talk about how many of you used to bring that little baby? She was probably too young to even remember mm-hmm. a lot of that. Mm-hmm. She used to go to all the meetings with me. Uh, and then Minra has been able to go to a lot of the uh, demonstrations with me. Uh, but more importantly, uh, he's had a lot of time um, sitting at the feet of a lot of the elders that I've been privileged to know. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dick Gregory and Minra, um, adopted each other as godfather and godson before I even knew about it. Um, <laughs> we got to know Reverend Jackson um, uh, and others and Reverend Sharpton. Um, and he also developed a close relationship with Coach Thompson, Coach John Thompson. Mm-hmm. So again, my point being, that shows you how recent all of this stuff is. Mm-hmm. That my youngest child would get to know all of these people and be impact, and not just in passing, but to actually know them and for them to know him mm-hmm. and in part. So he's had the blessing of a dozen, uh, and Ifton too, of a dozen famous uh, and movement um, grandfathers and grandmothers. So I'm, I'm, I feel very fortunate about that because there are things that he and Ifton have gotten from that um, 
that I also got from some of those same people. Yeah. Uh, it's one thing to tell stories about, oh, I knew this person, I met this person, but I've always brought them around those people and those folk have always appreciated being around them and, and helping to teach them. That's incredible. I mean, I'm sure he probably, you know, has his own, you know, thoughts about being able to share that experience with you and um, being able to meet such incredible people in that movement. Like, that's really, that's really amazing. With all of the protests now, do you feel like it feels any different than, you know, what you have previously um, partaken in? The last conversation I had with Coach Thompson uh, before he died was really quite a conversation because he asked me a similar question and even furthermore asked me whether all of these protests now, Black Lives Matter and all that, mm -hmm. whether it was really going to make a difference, whether this was really doing something. Um, right now, we're dealing with a police demic specifically. I mean, a lot of the things going on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the movements I'm involved in is reparations movement. It's taken, mm -hmm. you know, almost 30 years, but we're close to getting uh, passage mm -hmm. of reparations legislation. Some some movements don't change things overnight. Right. But it is organized effort. Right. I'm worried, Donna, about the Black Lives Matter movement because um, I don't think the principles that would make it most effective are being applied. Um, and by that, I mean, um, there's, there's general and national struggle, but there's also local struggle. Mm -hmm. I always say people, most struggles actually went locally. Uh, Dr. King didn't pop up and decide he was going to have an Instagram account and be a national leader. See, people can do that. <laughs> yeah. A lot of folk are national leaders on Instagram. And, uh, and I'm like, mm, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, that's really what's going on. Yeah. But you get followers. And so social media is, is sometimes establishing leadership where there still needs to be more study and understanding and experience. Mm -hmm. So what did Dr. King Montgomery. That was it. A local movement that had impact and effect that then went on to other local cities, Birmingham and Selma and others, and that changed the world. He won the Nobel Prize because of a local struggle that changed the world and America. He didn't win the Nobel Prize because he started with a national movement. Mm. Okay. And so watch this, police, we have to admit to ourselves and understand, Police are governed locally. Mm -hmm. Boards of election that suppress our votes are governed locally. And so what I've been saying to a, a lot of the younger generation, as unglamorous and as unsexy as it may seem, unless you are building local organization and local movement for local struggle, you may not be having the effect that you think you're having. Mm -hmm. 10,000 retweets, half a million Twitter followers, still does not make a difference if you're not putting pressure on local leaders and local elected officials um, in local towns. 
to change the police and to have accountability at the board of election level. And the threat that if they don't do something, there'll be consequences right there on the ground locally. And I just wish more people would study and understand that's really the effectiveness of black power and organizing, especially around those issues. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's some issues that, 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 that call for a national response, but even at the March on Washington, what was said now, as Dr. King said, people just only, you know, people only hear the four words. I have a dream. They, Oh, I have a dream is beautiful. And then they start crying. Uh -uh, Listen to the whole speech. Right. Uh, the check is still bouncing. Mm. He said, we are going back to the South to organize and to struggle where we are locally. That's what he said. If people didn't skip over the local struggle, they went right back into it and got engaged. Remember, Meg Evers was killed after the March on Washington. The March on Washington didn't stop none of that. Mm-hmm. They went back home to Mississippi to organize and they killed Mega Evers then, which shows how localized struggle was even after the March on Washington. Right. So to me, I, I think that's what some people are going to have to get back into. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, once they can get past uh, the glamour of whatever social media provides. But I, I, I hate to break this to people likes and retweets and reposts and shares don't necessarily translate into real local pressure on the ground to make city councils and mayors change the police department. And last thing I'm going to say on, see, if we really do that, let me tell you how real that is. A lot of these inner cities where the police are killing us have black city council members and black mayors. So we've got to decide if we're going to get involved in local struggle, we're going to threaten some of these black city council members and black mayors who look like us, who may be nice. Everybody's nice. Oh, you're so nice. But you ain't doing nothing. Right. Like you, you've been there for a thousand years. God bless you. Got to go. Right. Oh, politely. Yeah, as <laughs> so, politely as you can, yeah. Right. So, but, but it's, it's easier. 30, 000, Twitter, 30,000 feet in the air. Instagram, 30,000 feet in the air. Up here. In this lofty place, looking at all this, oh, all this is happening. But to go into some of these local com- communities and hit hard right. at the heart of what is causing it is what is needed. And I, I agree that, uh, you know, being able to take action, it, that's what makes sense. You know, it is beyond the social media, you know, reposts and retweets and all of those kinds of things. Um, and something that I think also makes sense to that I hadn't necessarily conceptualized was about, uh, you know, being where it is and not being everywhere. So, for example, you know, we've had protests here in Idaho, right? Um, I can't say that we, first of all, we don't have a whole lot of black people here in Idaho. One, two, <laughs> uh, you know, with the protest, people are like, that doesn't, you know, have anything to do with us and da da da. But there was this really beautiful vigil that was done back in June um, down at the Capitol, at the Boise Cap uh, or the Idaho Capitol in Boise. And um, it was incredible to watch. And it was like, more of the um, camaraderie and seeing communities come together to be able to support um, and not necessarily put pressure on, you know, 
our local officials, um, but it was just a support for a bigger movement. At least that's how I saw it. But then now that you're saying, um, you know, maybe that's it, like where those protests need to be done um, is more like in the specific places. Like that makes sense to me. You know, I never thought about it that way, um, but I still want to be able to support. I didn't get to go to that protest or any of the protests, but what I do um, to my best ability is to be able to support financially um, to the organizations that do. So whether it's donating to a cause or like a business that has goods that, you know, I want to purchase and then they, you know, have the means to be able to do the work that I just don't have the skills to do. You know what I mean? So I'm like, I'm going to give it to the people that know what they're doing. So uh, that was, that's interesting. Um, and, and that's an effective way mm-hmm. to do things and to make a contribution. Mm-hmm. But let's take Boise, for example. Mm-hmm. If I'm an elected official in Boise, who am I more afraid of? Right. On Twitter, who might be all over the world in the country, mm-hmm. versus some people right there in that local community mm-hmm. that can show up on my doorstep and make demands of me and, and have the, the, the power possibly to vote me out of office or target those uh, uh, economic pressure points that affect me as a local pol- politician. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what I think people need to uh, think about. And there's some BLM uh, uh, movements in local uh, c- communities um, that are doing that work. Mm-hmm. That, that are known <laughs> more for what they do locally than what is going on nationally. Mm-hmm. And I know a couple of mayors who wish those local BLM movements would leave them alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some local BLM movements who are death on those local elected officials. So, you know, I think those are the things that um, are more effective. Yeah. But, but again, it goes back to a, a willingness to to read and learn and study and understand how we won some of our victories during the civil rights movement um, is is not a feeling. Mm-hmm. It's 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 not a wheel that needs to be reinvented. We've done this before and we can do it again. Right. And you know there is a lot of call to action to vote, which a lot of people are unfortunately on the fence or completely on, you know, the naysayer side of the fence, aside of voting, um, how else would you suggest people become advocates if they want to make a difference in this world? Well, first to the voting piece. Um, I've been dealing with a lot of the, the naysayers on that. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I would say that a lot of the, that's a form of voter suppression that is, see social media has pros and cons. And there's an, an organized voter suppression movement on social media to discourage people, especially younger people, from voting. Um, and I would hope that people would look at that very, very carefully um, and ask themselves, um, is your contemplating staying home from voting an original thought you have or is it something that you saw on social media? Just, just be honest with yourselves and ask yourselves that, mm-hmm. that and that process in terms of, of that. Um, but like I said, wherever there are traditional social justice organizations, by traditional, I don't necessarily mean 
legacy organizations like the NAACP, all those, a lot, a lot of those local organizations still around. But where there's a Black Lives Matter organization, where you see a collective of people who are, are working to bring change, especially to police at a local level, especially to preventing change to, to the prevention of voter suppression in local area. That's who I think people need to get around and join and become actively involved in. Mm-hmm. And while you might say, well, you mentioned you don't have the skills, you probably have more skills than you realize. But, but sometimes, so we go back to the civil rights movement, it, it, there was no, there's no degree per se in struggle. Mm. Um, there's no PhD in that. It's, it's, it comes from experience. And again, that you can learn so much about what happened before by reading some of the histories of what went on during the civil rights movement and, and those struggles. So you'd be surprised what you can contribute. Dr. King went to pastor Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. He had no plan whatsoever to lead that movement. But when the old, older guys, older preachers saw him, they said, wait a minute, we got this young, super articulate, good looking brother. We need him leading. He didn't want to do it. No, I don't want to do that. That's not what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but true leadership is chosen. It's not always aspired to. And there, there are always stories about people who become involved and have much more to give than they realize. And I, and I think debate is healthy in organization and in movement. Mm-hmm. Going to the meetings, flushing out issues and strategies, debating them in a principled way as to what is best, what we must do. I think, I think that's healthy in terms of building local struggle and local movement. Okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot here since... Uh-huh. You've been so involved. So typically, you know, we do our weekly faith in humanity restored, um, where we give back where we can by supporting the businesses that incorporate giving from sales to charities or donate donating directly to the source, um, a dollar or a share at all counts. And so I feel like you probably have some top of mind. Um, so is there maybe an organization that you would like to highlight um, with a quick, you know, snapshot of the work that they're doing? I've been talking a lot about social media, of course. Mm-hmm. It's pro cons. So one of the organizations that I think is doing the most effective, scientifically measurable work on social media is colorofchange.org. And I would invite people to get involved in what they're doing, if, if nothing else, because they have been so effective in terms of holding local jurisdictions and corporate America accountable, um, more accountable than even boycotts of the past. Um, what they do is even more sophisticated and more threatening um, to some corporations than the threat of boycott. So, um, yes, uh, I would recommend color change. And just in general, it's not just about who you give your money to, folks, who you with, withhold your money from. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and when there are organizations that do not reflect um, diversity or respect for our people in struggle, maybe you need to stop giving them your money. Hey, let's Another go that route. I, give me one, give, let's do the opposite. <laughs> well, <laughs> we haven't done that before, but let's do the opposite. Yeah, but, but, but let, me, let, me, let me put it this way. Mm-hmm. 
there's an organization called uh, Guns Down America that I also work closely with. They've been fighting gun violence. And they, on their own, have developed um, a, a spreadsheet, and you can go to their website and look at it, in terms of what corporations have done since the death of George Floyd, what mm. promises they've made, what promises they've kept or not kept, and how tangible. So you folks can go there as well and look on that whole, it's the most comprehensive study of what they've done and not done that I have ever seen. Um, and you can see for yourselves, some of the, some of them, uh, some of us probably frequent and spend our money with um, more than we realize. I think we have to consciously find ways to spend money with people that look like us, who look like us. Absolutely. And, and, and there are a lot, there are a few other places and websites and social media accounts that are trying to um, corral that information. Um, but I think that's where we have to go and that's what we need to do. Absolutely. You know, I really appreciate you joining us and this has been incredibly insightful um, and a great discussion and with a lot of takeaways. Is there anything that we've missed that you think you'd want to maybe get into? No, I don't think so. Um, um, I think it's been a great discussion too. Thank you uh, for having me. I'm very, very proud of you. And Thank you. These, uh, these conversations are important. Um, and what better way um, than to have these conversations amongst your generation than those of you in your generation having them? Um, I, you know, again, I would just reiterate the, the importance of, of, of being willing to learn and understand and acknowledge our history, mistakes made, successes achieved. Uh, getting involved in local struggle. Um, I think those things are, are, are very, very important. Um, and if you all have time and if you're interested, uh, contact, uh, first of all, everybody, I think everyone should vote, um, but contact your Congress members, your senators, and ask them to support the reparations legislation, which I'm sure is gonna come up for a vote uh, mm -hmm. before the end of the year. Um, we never got our 40 acres in a mule. Mm -hmm. White middle class was built via legislation like the Homestead Act and the GI Bill and Social Security. Things that included white folks didn't just pop up rich. Right. Uh, just pop up one day, oh, we're middle class. They had help to get there. We right. did not. And so all of the disparity, socioeconomic disparity that we are still suffering, is because we still are dealing with the vestiges of slavery. And these epidemic is nothing but a form of modern day lynching. We've got to fight that. Mm -hmm. uh, look, this bill is going to be voted on by Congress and signed by a president. And they, those people needed to be voted upon. So anybody says don't vote, that's absurd. Women, mm -hmm. over 200 judges, if you want to uh, maintain whatever reproductive freedom women have achieved up to this point, uh, it's important to vote to elect people who can put judges in place who will, who will do that. So those are the only words I'd like to leave with. But again, um, very, very proud of you, Donna, and honored to be here with you. Thank you. Any social media you want to plug? Mm. Um, again, Color of Change. Um, the NAACP is still an important organization. 
Um, they have an infrastructure that no other organization has ever had in our history. Uh, some people say it's played out. I don't agree with that, especially on the local level. You be young people taking over local NAACPs. You all should think about that and run for office to lead your local NAACP. Uh, my social media, uh, make it plain, all one word, or minister with two T's. Um, but um, in terms of reparations, um, uh, reparations come for the National African American Reparations Commission, of which I am a member, reparations come. Um, and anything that encourages voting and showing up at the polls, don't wait, register early, vote early if you can, use mail-in if you can, get it now, send it back in. We can't do another four years of what we've been dealing with. Mm -mm. Well, thanks again for hanging out with us and um, I appreciate it. Thank you. You guys, that just makes me so happy. And what an awesome interview with Mark Thompson. I mean, I don't think that um, at this point you can get any closer to someone who is doing work on the ground um, and really dedicating their life to this movement and really looking to implement change. So um, just to recap what we highlighted for Weekly Faith and Humanity Restored, Color of Change, um, that's something that we have done before. So you may have already donated or maybe you're a new time listener and haven't gotten there yet, but that's colorofchange.org, the NAACP. Um, Mark's social media handles are Make It Plain on Instagram. And then also minister with two T's. And then um, the other movement that he mentioned to um, also support is the National African American Reparations Commission. Um, this is reparations, com, C-O-M-M, on Instagram. So um, this is for a united effort um, and a common commitment to fight for reparatory justice and restoration of African American communities. Um, again, reparations, com. Um, I'll go ahead and put everything in the show notes like I typically do, so you can be sure to um, catch up there. As always, I appreciate you guys hanging out with us and taking some time out of your day to join us on the podcast. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you are listening. You can follow the podcast Instagram page at Real Relatable Podcast. And until next time, be sure to keep it real and stay relatable. Bye, guys. Mm-hmm.